Welcome back to Reformed Millennials, the podcast where finances, economic trends, and sports intersect. Cam and Joel help listeners better invest their time and money. Also, it's important for listeners to understand that investing in equities, fixed income instruments, and or alternative asset classes involves substantial risk of loss. Any action you may take as a result of the information presented in this podcast is your own responsibility. The information in this podcast is presented as a general educational, informational, and entertainment resource only. While Joel is registered to provide investment advice, this podcast does not provide individualized investment, tax, or insurance advice, nor is it meant as a recommendation to any listener to buy or sell any specific securities or otherwise take any other form of investment action. This is an excerpt of the full legal disclaimer that's available on the landing page of this podcast, which includes whether Cam Pitchers or Joel Shackleton have any ownership or interest in the specific securities discussed in this podcast. Wednesday morning. Happy hump day, everyone. It's, uh, it's a short week between posts. We had a glitch, or I should say substack did. Mm. I couldn't post Friday because it was down and through to Sunday. And then Sunday, Monday for me, I was driving from Invermere back home. Big week, big long weekend in Canada. Mm-hmm. Pretty tough to get out some content. So I apologize for the delay. No one would have listened to us anyways. No, definitely not. This is, by all means, the slowest time for content consumption on our end so yeah we were saying last week dog days of of sports i think it's just dog days of of content in general i think you're right that doesn't matter what you're talking i mean i i would say like your, your favorite content creators are obviously probably still on a schedule and are doing their the same thing but across the board even if you were to look at views on youtube videos etc everything's down in comparison just because people have other things to do actually nice out so what I want to talk about today, well, maybe I'll just do a little bit of a rundown. We have market mm-hmm. update out the gate. It's, it is earnings season, so I do need to cover kind of what's going on there. There's been a ton of tech news, AI news, all of that um, has been kind of hot off the press and coming out almost at a at a pace in which I could barely keep up. Um, so they, it hasn't slowed down this summer. But additionally, we had some big news in sports. I also listened to a phenomenal podcast around mostly the United States housing market, but I actually think that it um, is a really good barometer for Canadian real estate. And I want to talk about that a little bit. And then we'll, there was a release on the, the annual valuations of sports teams mm-hmm. um, that I kind of want to talk about a little bit. And obviously the Barstool Pen, ESPN, ESPN. Disney news that just dropped this week. Yeah, um, August a, 8th, yeah. It's been a long time since I've had to pay attention to Barstool Sports and Dave Portnoy, and I'm a little bit excited to see them back in the news. So let's let's talk about that a little bit. But um, just to kick it off, we had last week Berkshire reported on the weekend, and I think that along with Walmart, Berkshire Hathaway is a really great barometer for where the U.S. economy is. I mean, if you just think about all of the businesses that they own. I think it, it ranges all the way from Apple across to railroads mm-hmm. and everything in between, insurers, um, oil and gas companies, service businesses, gas stations, seize candy, name it, they probably own it. Um, and it's quite clear that the consumer is slowing down, especially when you look at the rails who deliver mm-hmm. a lot of these goods. And 
while you see trucking volumes increasing, rail volumes are decreasing, the economy isn't chugging along at the same pace that it was in 21 and 22. And it's, it's quite evident inside of the Berkshire um, balance sheet. Additionally, and a lot of analysts drew attention to the fact that they are building up cash again. So their cash hoard is now in that $160 billion range, which is obviously insane. Mm -hmm. But luckily for them, they get to have that in U.S. Treasuries and Mm -hmm. or Canadian GICs and well, not actually in Canadian GICs, but you, you get what I'm saying. And it's clear that they're waiting for something to happen. I don't know. I don't think they know what that is, but that is usually they've made or they've done a lot of their investments that they felt um, they needed to do over that three-year period. I think they did miss in 2020, and they're hoping that there's some sort of opportunity that um, comes up in the next year or two years. They are a notorious for being able to outweigh anybody. So we'll see what they do with that, and it could get to 250 before they do anything with it. But my guess is they feel valuations are fully baked in based on earnings per share right now. And a lot of analysts are saying the same thing. So I'm a big reader of DataTrek, and I post something about it every single day in our, in our, um, our Notion or our doc. And they've effectively come and said that the biggest and most important thing for us to be paying attention to is the U.S. tenure. And it's kind of trading like it's about to break out, which to me suggests that we're at a near-term high mm-hmm. with regards to equities. And the current risk premium that you're paying for equities is not really worth it. And this is me not giving investment advice. This is just me talking about where the market sits today. And it's just a fact that 2.7% of stocks drive 100% of the returns in markets. Not 100%, but most of them, of the upside in, 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 in the markets. And bonds outperform a large majority of equities over the long period of time. And right now, if you're looking to put cash to work, it just makes a ton of sense for you to go short duration and clip the coupon. Whether it be corporate bonds, short duration bonds, stay on the on the short side of that curve and and kind of wait for whatever is about to happen because equities have run hard. I mean, the S&P was up 17 and a half percent this year. The Nasdaq was at one point up 40. It was the hottest six months in its history. Mm-hmm. So for us to digest and see a rejection at what looks like all time highs for the Nasdaq and the S&P 500 makes a ton of sense. It's called overhead supply. And just looking at the charts, it's quite clear that um, we're running into some of that and people are starting to take some profits. They've had a great year, mm-hmm. especially if you were long equities going into it. So it's, that's what's happening right now. Um, the, the thing to pay attention to with regards to stocks right now is, is profitability and revenue acceleration. So if we're actually going to see continued upside over the next six months, you really need to see profitability improve. So this means um, cost cutting by our large corporations, but then also an outperformance on the upside. So right now, and this is from DataTrek, they are looking at what analysts and the market is pricing into growth in financials, materials, energy, healthcare, industrials, et cetera. And the only sector that they expect to grow for the remainder of this year is tech and then also grow next year 
mm-hmm. at an 8.3% pace. I think that that's telling. The only thing that I believe is mispriced a little bit right now is energy and materials. Otherwise, it's we're pretty fully baked in. So, And I think to, I guess, pull from commentary from prior podcasts from you talking about the, the run the equities have been on, the, I guess, the initial prediction that interest rates are at their peak, at least for right, like based off of data that's, that's available to us right now. Obviously we know things can change on a dime depending on the monthlies, but essentially that change in interest rates is depending on if you're talking about us or Canada is Q1, Q2, maybe even Q3 of 2024 is when those changes are going to happen. Yeah. If we're going to get an actual cut in rates, yeah. it's not coming this year. At least we so, aren't, it doesn't look like it's happening this and year. And so, and you can tell me if my simpleton mind on this is, is too simple, but in the sense of equities being, as you put it, potentially at a high right now, based off of some of the indicators, it's almost like everything that it's run its course in terms of pricing all of the, I guess, maybe consumer activity and the market's always six to nine months ahead, as exactly. you famously said a, a few times, right? On this podcast, maybe once or twice, I can't remember, one or 2,000. And it's an important thing to think about. And I, I guess just, again, with, with me learning more about the prediction models that would be in place, that kind of makes sense to me that now it's like, well, we've had this great eight months or seven months of, of, of equities, and now it's time for that pendulum to start swinging back the other way. And let's put our, we have to think about how you're putting your money to work and whether or not another 20% growth on holding equities for the next four months is probably not something that is going to happen. Well, exactly. So, so I mean, again, not financial advice here, but markets tend to discount events that are six to nine months out, which tells you that we're looking at Q4 2023 earnings right now. So when you see a stock move today, it's likely pricing an event right. out in the future. So let's say, for instance, yesterday we had Shopify and Snowflake all get smashed. And that's mostly because of what people believe is going to happen in Q4 2023. Not today, Mm -hmm. 2023. And that's an important mindset to have when you're watching the market every single day. A lot of people think that it's because of something that happened in the past. When in reality, it's everything is is looking forward, especially in public markets. This is not private. This is not something where you have control over anything. This is truthfully them reporting what they foresee into the future. And that there's a ton of variables that go into it. It's not a sports contract where you get paid off your past performance. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Sadly, and I mean, for for the better, probably, most CEOs are based, are are stock comp, and they're always controlling for short time horizons. This is where um, there's a big difference between a founder-led company and a CEO-led company. A CEO who's been appointed to that seat usually has a comp package that is, let's call it three years in length, maybe five years. And their goal that the board sets out for them is almost always stock price performance. It's not some, there are other KPIs and, and that they're looking at, but generally speaking, that's the duration. Whereas Mark Zuckerberg, when he's managing Meta or Facebook or Instagram, whatever you want to refer to it as, um, is, doesn't think about it that way. He's like, I'm 38 or 40 and I'm in the middle of beating up or trying to beat up Elon Musk. 
You need to um, find the right octagon to get into. Yeah. Um, and my view is that I want to do this job for another 20 years. Where can I take this business? Right. So there's you, when you're buying an individual security, you really need to think about that. Who's in charge? What is management trying to accomplish? What am I trying to accomplish in buying this equity? Um, because as I had mentioned earlier today, most stocks underperform long duration bonds. And if you're going to be a stock picker, you really need to get to understand the incentives because incentives drive all decisions in life. So you got to understand the incentives of the person who's managing your business. These are all imperative for you to understand. So, and also it gives you the foresight or the understanding of how do I think I'm going to make a return on this investment? Exactly. Is it going to be a 12 month return or, and then I'm going to switch it up or is it going to be, I want to hold Facebook until I'm also 58 years old. Exactly. Because if you, I mean, if you are doing that, well then you should be able to stomach the outrageous 70% declines. Stop opening up your prof or your portfolio <laughs> valuation every single day. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, that's kind of my update for the day. I do. I saw one thing I just wanted you to, cause you've talked about this a thousand times, but so f there was a, I didn't share this with you yet, but on app economy insights, just talked about Apple's performance. So they made $21.2 billion last quarter. So that was more than Netflix, MasterCard, Spotify, uh, Activision and Peloton combined. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's really important. I, I'll, I'll use this as a, as an analogy. The, their headphones hmm. are a, would be in the top 25 of S&P 500 companies if they were to just spin off AirPods. Headphones, yeah. That's how big Apple is. I don't, it's impossible to truly understand just how big they are. Their business is bigger than Canada from a market cap perspective. Their, the market cap of Apple is nearly $3 trillion. The market cap of our Toronto Stock Exchange is not $3 trillion. That is how big Apple is. So I know we haven't talked a ton about it. Like, I mean, this podcast, I don't think would have started before that. But like the transition to Tim Cook, it's kind of just a crazy story. Like, he's one of the GOAT operators of all time. Because like there would have been a lot, and, and rightfully so, in terms of that transition, there would have been a lot of, I'm going to say haste, but just uncertainty around that and how can someone who's how can someone build off of this to make it the same kind of growth that had been seen previously and he's really hit it out of the park when did he take over 2013 i have this crazy thing in front of me called a computer and i will check so let's assume i'm right and it's 2013 it might be 2011 but yeah 2011 he 2011 took over. Yeah. okay and at that time, I'm just looking back. And again, people need to understand that this is rough, but they've also done three stock splits or two stock splits since then. But the stock in today's price was trading at 10 bucks, roughly when he took over between like eight and 10. Today, we're at 177. Not bad, not bad, Tim. Um, <laughs> at that time, I actually remember the where I was sitting when Steve Jobs was diagnosed with cancer, they gave him like three resigned, months yeah. and resigned. I was sitting in the Sherwood Park library mm. doing nothing probably. Um, <laughs> and I can't remember who was sitting across from me, but I remember reading it. I remember the direction I was facing, everything. And at that time, the market was like 
oh no, Apple is is toast. Their their founder and innovator is gone. They're never going to be able to iterate. Well, the that stock mentality went from twenty-one that, to twelve. And that mentality that you just talked about, a CEO-led company versus a founder-led company, you've lost the, this founder leadership and probably what the basis was for a lot of people's trust and confidence in the long-term vision. And mm-hmm. so when you bring somebody third party or an outsider- well, He wasn't even an outsider, been, so he was their uh, supply chain guy. Well, yeah, he, he. I think I'm just reading the wiki, which is obviously 100% correct all the time, but he was with IBM pre-Apple, and then in 98, Jobs asked Cook to join at that point. So he had been around for 10, 12, yeah. 13, 15 years yeah. at this point. Yeah. Um, so he takes over. He was, I believe, their supply chain guru. Um, big reason why they're in Asia. Um, I think that one of the biggest assets Apple has is their their supply chain diversity and mm-hmm. um, the fact that they can they can generate 40 plus percent net margins on on a lot of their hardware is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a testament to their brand, but also their their efficiencies efficiencies. So, and I know you said you're going to have a little bit of an AI update potentially here if we still have time for it, but that's one thing I've been kind of reading just in little articles here or there, nothing that was too deep or, or like specific, but just saying how I think even on this podcast, we've been talking about Google and we've been talking about Microsoft. We haven't really been talking about Apple too much in the AI space. Yeah. They and like so to I'm, come, they like to come in second. And it's, that's the, it's basically talking about the, you know, the predator that's waiting in the grass, like in the long grass kind of thing to pounce and, and to release something that's going to be that much better. And I think we've talked about this in the form of Facebook or Meta and what Zuckerberg has been able to do and take things and, and improve upon a, a, a base platform or a base service. And I think Apple obviously can can do something similar with the resources that they have at play and just a tad bit of cash. So I feel like maybe they can they, do a lot. I think a good way to think about Apple when it comes to artificial intelligence is the fact that they still, and this has been a, lo- a big new debate on online where everyone's trying to think about where the everything app is going to be. And I'm of the opinion that North Americans will never have an everything app. We don't like complete control. Um, the closest thing we have to it today would be split, in my opinion, between three businesses, which is you have the Apple OS, which is the everything company. And then you have um, Meta, which owns the three largest platforms that we participate in. Yeah, for messaging and, and social. For those that are not inside of that, you have Google, which I think has a its own subset with, with Android, YouTube, Google, Search, Bard, that mm-hmm. whole suite where mm-hmm. they have, I think they have something like eight apps with over 500 million users and three or four with mm-hmm. over 2 billion. It's an unbelievable app ecosystem. So you have these three everything apps. I don't believe North Americans or Western society will ever have something that that you pay bills on, you also do, you're doing your homework on, you're communicating with your, your children your, and your friends. Doing your grocery shopping. Grocery shopping. I don't, I don't view out. that as that ever being something that we do. We have the five most valuable businesses on earth that are all vying for that space. It would be super odd to me if we ever found um, a home for everybody in one spot. So, and, I, and I'm sure the sentiment around that and a company that's has a mission to become the everything app 
if we were to get them in a candid moment, that would mean just getting X market share of like, if you get 20% of people using your app for yeah, 80% of their user needs, that's going to be a really good business. So <laughs> yeah. I know that you had shared an article about, it was an opinion piece on a, and the caveat would be that he's a portfolio manager who holds a, a lot of Uber, but that Uber would be, has been performing decently well, I think from a stock perspective in mm-hmm. the last 24 months or 12 months, 12 months, 12 months, and has been continuing to add services within their app to make user experience better and keep things at their fingertips, which I think from my recollection of going into the Uber app, it is still mostly around travel and groceries and getting things delivered to your home, Mm -hmm. which is great. I mean, having those extra pieces to get your, I mean, I'm not sure if it's available in Canada or not, but they have examples of your prescriptions being picked up and brought to your home and your groceries, obviously, and your liquor orders and, 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 and for all those things getting delivered, which I, I think provides a, a great service. I just don't know how that went to your point about the kind of the end of the free, the free service apps that we've, we've talked about a few times before is how much is this all going in order to continue the scale that they need to, to have, how much is that going to cost people at the end of the day? Is it going to become too expensive where I, I find it. Um, so this is, he's, he's speaking about Josh Brown, who is the CEO and of Ritholtz Wealth Management, which is a wealth management firm in the United States. They are one of the fastest growing RIAs in the country. He's a dominant figure, predominant figure on CNBC. He's not really a PM. He's a manager of, mm. a, of a business. He speaks his mind. He doesn't have any clients. He has, um, advisors who have clients. Mm. So he's popular. Yeah, he is a visionary. He's very popular. And quite honestly, he's a, he, he, um, he understands market narrative. I think he understands consumer. I think he's a really smart guy. However, um, I'm, this is where you and I living in a smaller city and him who is in New York city, Mm. they have, we have different opinions on these things, right? The way that we live our lives is completely different. When you look at someone who lives in Ohio or Saskatchewan or Manitoba to somebody who lives in Toronto, I mean, I was in Toronto recently and speaking with my friends there, we are completely different people. Mm -hmm. And it's the way that we live our lives day to day. We accomplish our almost every task differently because of the, the way in which our cities are built population density everything right so this is a new yorker speaking about how important uber is without the context of a oh someone from ohio or utah or denver i think that while the population density gives this a lot of runway and Mm -hmm. i think there's a possibility there i am still of the opinion that uber does go vertical and they can add amazing tools where i think they become a consumer or not consumer a travel-oriented business, something that would do well to acquire a, an Expedia, um, something along those lines where they can integrate into your Air Canada app or into your United Airways app, into that sort of, um, let's call it business line. Mm-hmm. I, I believe that there's a ton of opportunity there. I don't know where it ends up. Honestly, a credit card company should be buying an Uber because they can integrate their services into, or their rewards services into what they're providing. 
Not that that'll ever happen. And make that use case so much easier for the consumer. I just used all of my points that I've obtained over the last probably five years for one flight to Europe in about a month's time. It's just absolutely soul-crushing. I know. Business owners who get to run all of their... um, Revenue or their purchases through a card that they can also use, mm. they're just laughing at us, being like, "You guys are fools, fools, fools!" fools. I earned that many points in a two-week period. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but moving on, I I want to talk about uh, at least something that I didn't really know about much until today, and I think this is kind of a hot button topic for anyone on Twitter, but even just a millennial, most of us grew up reading barstool sports. Mm-hmm. Um, or at least you found yourself watching content that they're putting out. Yeah, completely, right? I I was a I have read it since 2020. Maybe even earlier than that. Um, and I remember the days when they used to throw university parties. Yeah. 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 So yes, yeah, yeah. sorry, 2010. Yeah. Gosh. Um, that's how old so I So you probably getting. quit in 2020, but I quit <laughs> Barstool Sports when I um, was 26, 27. Mostly just because I didn't have room within my content consumption budget to to make it worthwhile for myself. To, to continue watching frat guys smash Bud Lights on their head. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And um, not that there's anything wrong with that. No. I think what's really interesting, though, is, is what's occurring right now. Because I've been moderately interested in where Disney's going. I think that they've really struggled uh, with or around the narrative of... Obviously, lockdowns were terrible for parks. Then they made this massive shift into Netflix-style streaming services. They've Mm -hmm. been enormously successful in acquiring um, a ton of subscribers. There's not a lot of profitability there. The margins are crappy relative to their parks. The stock itself, Disney, has underperformed the index, and it's one of the longest-standing companies in America. They're profitable, but... Not as much as you wish they would be. The stock was at 202 in the middle of 2021. Today, it's 88. It's been hammered. It's down a lot. And they've fired their CEO, Bob Iger's back, the King Bob. And they're trying to change the direction. And they have this massive asset, in my opinion, with regards to, and this is uh, an ESPN. Mm -hmm. But it's still attached to the cable bundle, mm-hmm. which it has this weird bifurcation of, consum- of of who's purchasing it. You have us on one end, which I should say myself on one end, who's never ever had a cable subscription in his life. And then there's the older generation, which continues to have cable. And me. And you. <laughs> but you are a boomer. So there's this weird dynamic in this market where those people are all dying and they're moving into um, old folks' homes or their they're not exactly where you want to be advertising. Advertising dollars have shifted. They're no, it's no longer going to cable TV, but sports is still the number one spot for acquiring new eyes, fresh eyes, live. Mm-hmm. There's nowhere else to do it, quite frankly. Netflix's business has sw- shifted where they've now added an ad tier. This ad tier, in my opinion, is going to continue to become dominant mm-hmm. at the Netflix on the Netflix side. They are going to be our our cable TV. It is a fact that it's coming. Like I don't care what anyone says; you'll never convince me otherwise. However, the ad free tier and HG tier, tier you think is expensive now. You haven't seen anything yet. It's mm-hmm. going to be obnoxious 
because they want to sell you ads because that business is way better. Just look at Facebook. They are the greatest ad delivery business to ever exist with the exception of maybe Google. Mm -hmm. Netflix is going for that market. And all of those cable dollars that used to be at Disney, they used to be at 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 AT&T, they used to be at all of your, your cable providers is shifting to this new market. Now, how do you acquire eyeballs? How do you, how do you build and improve your, your net margins? Well, sports gambling just so happens to be so becoming not, legal. Notwithstanding the fact that it doesn't necessarily align with the Disney brand. Which it doesn't, we'll right? Take that, but they, you know how this art, everything with these releases is ESPN. Like there's no mention of Disney unless you're obviously going into an article and saying, well, this is the actual publicly traded ticker that's involved here is Disney, mm-hmm. but ESPN is, is the one. So yeah, the Disney, the, the Disney unit is partnering with Penn national. So this is where the tie in with Barstool comes in, uh, to rebrand its Barstool sports book as ESPN bet, which will launch in the 16 States where Penn is licensed later this year. Alongside, uh, the transaction Penn has agreed to sell 100% of the full Barstool media company back to the founder, David Portnoy in exchange for certain non-compete and other restrictive covenants. So we'll get into that in a second, but Penn has agreed to pay ESPN 1.5 billion in cash over the initial 10 year agreement for ESPN bet. The company will also grant ESPN approximately 500 million of warrants to buy 31.8 million of Penn shares that will vest over the next decade. ESPN could receive a bonus of up to 6.4 million more Penn shares if ESPN bet hits certain thresholds which obviously are not disclosed at this time so i think it said something like from a from pen standpoint who would obviously partner with barstool and had made these inroads they they had i guess casino related gambling related inroads in a number of states when they first partnered with barstool they've expanded to more states over the past two or three years barstool's reach from my understanding was about eight uh, I need, I need to find this number. Just call it, I think it's 117 million users. I'm not sure if it was, I think m- monthly Daily, active users. Yeah. I thought it was daily active, but yeah, it's probably monthly month, active users. And then versus 8 million with Barstool. So you think the reach difference. It's not there. even in the same, it's not even in the same, um, category. Universe, yeah, exactly. Right? So, not. so ESPN, obviously, I mean, I guess like, I, I was, I was, wondering while reading these articles like what other options were out there for espn like why does pen make the most sense in relation to this relationship is it probably the cheapest or is it the the most incentive based where they're able to obviously they're going to pen and saying hey like you're going to benefit greatly from having our user base. So here's this $1.5 million deal that you're going to sign. Here's, we want a bunch of stock options in relation to this compared to if they were, if ESPN were to go to a draft Kings call it or whatever it might be, but that, that's who they're competing against. They don't want to partner with someone. They want to build up their own thing. And so to me, this deal is, it's going to be very interesting to see the uptake on ESPN. Obviously we've, probably bashed ESPN a little bit with, with certain things in, in relation to their connection with cable and, and their inability to necessarily have the same kind of growth as like from a streaming standpoint, or probably have made some missteps along the way. But as you said before, from a, 
from a, a, a reach standpoint on live content, there's nothing better than sports still. And from a main demographic standpoint as to who's spending money, obviously the people watching sports are very attractive to both advertisers and sports books or whatever it might be. And where we could see this going in the next, call it five years, with the kind of rebranding of ESPN too, I think they've taken, they've put a lot of money into content creators. I mean, we talk, I'm not sure if we actually ended up talking about Pat McAfee. So he would be a pretty well-known sports figure over the past three years, kind of an ex NFL player kind of created his spun off of Barstool and created his own kind of media show, media empire in Southern United States, got huge popularity, was getting better numbers than obviously ESPN shows. What did ESPN do? They fired a bunch of their longstanding people who analysts and on-air personalities who did not kind of cut it at the end of the day from a viewership standpoint and, and, and content creation standpoint and have brought on um, Pat McAfee's show and all of his staff and, and they're now He's got an eighty-five million dollar five-year contract, contract with ESPN. So they've they've re they've taken their their I'm sure their total budget for that spending has probably remained similar, but they've completely shifted away from the not shifted away, but they've really cut back on the on-air personality side of things. The traditional sports they desk. got rid of a lot of guys, a lot, and now they're going towards obviously what well is, new distribution. What is they're buying distribution, and your new eyeballs and I would even argue a younger demographic is going to be watching Pat McAfee. Um, whereas the older generation will always be watching the ESPN sports deck desk, whether they have their old remembered, highly paid, um, sports broadcasters or new ones at a lower price point. I think that there's something interesting going on here, a redistribution of the, of the, 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 the pie. And this is a, in my opinion, the right move from Disney's point of view. 100%. I think that while they have ABC and all of these old legacy, um, all this le legacy content on their end that they're dealing with, they're probably going to spin off and sell, and it's all going to be for a huge loss and write down. But the ESPN asset is incredibly valuable, and it should be and, and should remain um, something that they – perhaps monetize traditionally, but then um, make a long-term 25-year pivot to where media is today. And whether that be means they're going to have deals with, with specific TV distribution or um, YouTube distribution or Instagram or, or acquiring people that already have that distribution for tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars, this strategy makes a lot of sense. And adding that sports book piece, the part that is incredibly profitable for them outside of advertising and doing so without having to um, deteriorate the Disney brand mm -hmm. and, the, and the ESPN brand. The ESPN bet makes a lot of sense in terms of like what the brand says. Um, it's separation and, and not being branded alongside Disney makes a lot of sense. Now this well, it's, it's also completely normal now just to have sports and sports betting hand in hand, whereas a decade yeah. ago, 15 years ago, well, it was illegal. Exactly. And, and every piece of rhetoric out of every major sports f league in North America was like, we'll never do that.
Yeah, and now Wayne Gretzky slowly. is pushing. Um, That's right, Bet MGM. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this makes a lot of sense. Um, Disney and ESPN is allowed to come second because they have the the backing to do so and the and the balance sheet to do it. Not only that, they're coming with more eyeballs than anybody. Does this mean that um, is this bad news for FanDuel and for DraftKings? I don't care actually. It's more of a. Um, I think this pie is ever growing. Yes, this is say, not yeah. a pie that's um, stagnant. My my belief is is that gambling as a percentage of people's spend is going to continue to increase. I don't think that that's great for society, but I just think it's a reality. And um, this is a, an interesting shift. Now, what does this mean for barstool? Mm-hmm. And um, I've long been a big believer that customer acquisition costs at a certain scale of business is a really good strategy. I think that Penn made a name for itself just by associating itself with um, Dave Portnoy and the Barstool Sports Gang. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, this merger was bad for business for Barstool Sports with regards to their growth and their, I don't know. What made them Barstool. Yeah, exactly. And it was a liquidity event for Dave and the rest of the team there. I think that you can't see it as anything other than that. It was a genius time. From a timing perspective, the stock went from $4, Penn stock went from 38 to four to 140, and now we're back to 28. It's been quite the roller coaster. People probably remember the Creed Take Me Higher videos from the, the middle of, of the pandemic where the stock just wouldn't stop going up. No one can deny the promotional um, ability of Dave Portnoy. I can only imagine the legal bills, though, mm-hmm. of dealing with him. And, I mean, I'm, to a much smaller scale, understanding that having any sort of um, media when you're in a highly regulated industry is a struggle and, and can be time-consuming, but also limiting. And you really need to figure out where's the money being made? How do I, how do I, um, how do I navigate this? And for him, it really seems like he got paid. Um, he's going to keep all of the money that he received. So they paid $551 million at, or sorry, they paid at a valuation of 551 million. They bought some 64% of, of Barstool Sports. That's my understanding. After well, they, two deals. Yes. Yeah. Well, the, the company was sold for 500 million to Penn in 2020, three years later, um, or earlier this year, the, that was the original valuation was at 500 million in 2020 for 36% and the final 64% closed earlier in 23 or late 22. And then obviously in a short term here, it has been, Gifted is the wrong word, but the actual equity and control stake of Barstool has been given back to Dave for zero dollars in terms of actual cash exchanged. But I had made mention of the, um, the I guess the non-financial covenants around that. And I guess one of them is financial in the future. But if, if Barstool is to sell in the future, or have a liquidation event in the future, Penn gets 50% of the profits of future liquidity. And Barstool can't advertise any sports books and Barstool can't launch its own sports book. So I don't know if that's in perpetuity, if it's for a certain amount of years, it's, or is it, if it's just until they renegotiate this deal in five years, once Penn has seen how ESPN has worked out and we see where Barstool is at. I think a lot of people's reactions to the, the threads and the, and, and the information around this, the articles is that obviously Penn has now traded up to ESPN. Dave did a, his, 
for those who actually have followed Barstool, he did an emergency press conference, which is him sitting at a desk, standing uh, usually next to a water cooler <laughs> and giving it. But yeah. he talked about how he was obviously from the standpoint saying, I still have pen stock. I'm holding pen. I think I, I've had a good deal with pen, but I knew from the from early in the onset of this acquisition that it was changing what Barstool was and what we had set out to do was going to be very difficult because of the regulation and the, I guess, the, the limiting factors of being a part of a regulated industry, both from the betting standpoint and from obviously being attached to a publicly traded company. And he, I think as a founder and what he believed in terms of his vision for the company, he saw that slipping away. And obviously this opportunity came up where Penn wants to make in. I'm sure from Penn's standpoint too, this acquisition has not gone exactly as planned. So the fact that they're able to trade up and then at the same time, it's almost like a, hey, we're not going to make you pay for everything, but we're going to limit what you can do. But this also gives you full control of your actual media side of the business and where you want to take this, which is kind of what, if we want to talk about wherever Barstool started in, you know, late 2000s early 2010s and what exploded it it was its ability to be a as dave put it a pirate ship there is no regulation there is they can put out whatever they want whenever they want they don't have to be careful what they what they're saying they can just do their content don't have to apologize to anybody that's what they want to do and obviously i think the fact that pen has still attached itself to barstool in the sense of future liquidity they must view this as being something that could potentially still pay off in the future and continue to grow in value. Cause I don't think they would have attached that or stayed on from that standpoint, if they thought we need to completely remove ourselves from any attachment with them. So it's going to be, I, I'm not sure, obviously Dave and the rest of the barstool think tank will have some ideas about what they're going to do. I think I'll, such a big piece of their content or at least stuff that I continued to tune into and into my late twenties and early thirties was the betting side of things because they, they would kind of dive in on that obviously from an NFL standpoint specifically, and they have a ton of content around that. And so it'll be interesting to see how they replace that. Can they, can they still do the, the content generation and give opinions obviously, but then just obviously can't do the sponsorship side of things or the advertising promotion side of things with sports betting. It's going to be, it's going to be interesting. So it's, and then from, again, from Penn's standpoint, I think this is a no brainer in terms of them attaching themselves with a, a brand and a user base that should give them immediate returns. Yeah. And I, I should, I need to make this clear because I think a lot of people think, um, Dave Portnoy made this, I mean, arguably a great trans transaction here, got a liquidity event at, at peak um, valuations. Mm -hmm. He then um, held his stock, maintained his brand. It kind of plateaued for a couple of years. They tried the sports book thing, didn't work out, but I think it did. So this is where I believe this was all worth it for Penn. So, I mean, they have total assets of 17 and a half billion. Um, this acquisition was, call it, what would you say, 3%? Mm -hmm of asset value. Yeah, dropping the bucket at the end of the it's day. It's really yeah. nothing crazy for Penn, but also it now gave them a brand. No one even knew who they were. If sure. you think about what they own in terms of assets, they have a bunch of horse racing tracks, they have um, some casino assets, Boomtown, they have a few um, things that people just truly don't know a lot about. 
Now, fast forward to today, we're talking about it on podcasts. They have a relationship with arguably one of the most famous sports commentators who isn't at a big brand in the world um, or in America anyways. They have now put themselves in a position where they could be in a room with Bob Iger. I don't think people quite understand how big of a deal that is. They just did a deal with ESPN Bet. They probably would have paid $2 billion to get into that room to give to get the opportunity to run a sports book for the biggest sports brand on earth. Yep. So, was this worth it? Penn is laughing right now. They would give up Barstool Sports 100 times to get to go and, in, at least in my opinion, have a five-year chance at building the largest sports book in North America with the best sports brand in North America with some of the best assets in North America and all of the leverage on earth. Like the only thing I can think of that would be better than moving in with ESPN would be somehow some way getting a deal with the NFL, a single deal with the NFL, Mm -hmm. which is never going to happen. They'll never do that ever. So pretty smooth operating here. I think this was a really great um, move on both parts. Probably I think Dave won. I think Penn National Gaming has done an incredible job. And arguably, this is a, a win-win across the board. Interesting. It'll be really interesting to see where Barstool Sports goes from here. Uh, I'm guessing it will become <clears throat> ever more uh, triggering. And they're going to continue to, to really push the envelope like they have ever, like probably since 2021 or and prior. I'm guessing they'll go back to the pirate ship. So that'll be fun to watch. It'll be interesting to see all of the drama that will come out of this for sure. So continuing on with sports. Yeah, maybe the last thing today. I know we've 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 now teased a real estate update two straight weeks, but I don't think we have time no, to dive we don't. into that as much. But so next week for sure. Anyways, the we like to touch on this every time there's a new release. Uh, Sportico, great follow on Twitter for all kind of sport-related content, kind of the business of sport, et cetera have now recently released a ranking of all 152 teams in the big five North American leagues. So NFL, NBA, NHL, MLS, MLB. And so Joel, out of the top 40 out of the 152, how many of the 32 NFL teams do you think are in the top 40? So (laughs) on it, if I was being honest in answering this question, Mm -hmm. you you asked me prior. So I know the answer, sadly. Mm -hmm. Um, I said 30. Mm -hmm. And I actually thought you said top 100, not top 40. So if I was really being honest, I would have guessed 15 probably. Mm -hmm. But it's 32? All 32 NFL teams. So Dallas Cowboys at 9.2 billion. So we'll we'll get into maybe a couple of the things here. We say Dallas Cowboys 9.2 billion on Sportico's rankings. Now we know for those who would connect the dots back to our discussion around the Washington Commanders recent sale, that was for essentially, I think it was 6 billion and change. Was it higher than that? Six billion and change, I think, was was the total. I'll have to maybe fact check myself there. But anyways, that that you would think the val- the valuation of of the Washington Commanders, if we go through this list quickly, is six six point oh five billion on this list. So I think it ended up actually selling for slightly above that when we take into account six the, billion by Josh Harris. So I, I think the the six point oh five billion valuation on. The Sportico listing would be, um, I guess, pretty accurate. It says 6.05, but it actually, I think the, the the team itself plus real estate, et cetera, actually pushed it kind of closer to seven at the end of the day. But anyways, the, the 
what these rankings are are not necessarily obviously what someone would pay. Like I think Dallas Cowboys would actually sell for well above nine point two billion dollars. Sportico's they have a I'm I'm out of I don't pay for their premium content, so I can't see the exact formula in relation to coming up with with this and and maybe I should just to get a better understanding but I think a lot of it's based off of again historical data in terms of their their revenues and their kind of reach outside of their sport and what other things they might have from a branding standpoint that's not just hey every Sunday we play it's what does the Cowboys represent in the state of Texas and the country of of the United States and the continent of North America etc but anyways it's everything yeah so Dallas Cowboys 9.2 billion tops the list they are 1.6 billion clear of number two which is now the Golden State Warriors which is actually that kind of interested me so the NBA has one two three four teams in the top 40 the Major League Baseball uh, rounds out the other four with kind of the teams that you would think the major centers, the Yankees, the Dodgers, the Red Sox, the Cubs. And for the, uh, the NBA teams, it's Golden State, the Knicks, the Lakers, the Bulls. So those, I think if you were to look at the top 40, you'd be like, yeah, that all kind of makes sense. I mean, it, it is kind of slightly shocking that you got the Cowboys at 9.2 billion and then number 40, you have the Cincinnati Bengals at 4 billion. The fact that they're all in there in the top four, all 32 teams in the top four, just again speaks to the dominance and what the machine of the NFL is and how the kind of rising tides raise all boats type thing with, with in terms of team value. They've really been able to, like, I'm sure the, I'm not sure when Cincinnati last sold or was acquired, but even if Dallas, would a Jerry pay for him? 150 million. So 61 times what he paid is now what it's worth. Not bad. Not bad. So that's really interesting. The other kind of tidbits, I'm just taking a few a few tweet notes from Eben Novi Williams, who I'm not sure if he's part of Sportico or just commenting on it, but only two NHL teams in the top 75, and that would be the Maple Leafs at 2.12 billion, the Rangers at just a, just a shade over two, the LA football club, which would be part of MLS is above 17 NHL teams, which is very surprising. So Los Angeles FC. So that's, there's two teams in LA. I actually thought the galaxy were more popular, but LAFC is at 900 million. So yeah, above 17 NHL teams. And there's only five MLS teams now below the value of the Arizona Coyotes, which sits at 465 million. So the good job, Gary Bettman. Good. Well, and, and so again, the context of this, I think there's probably less variability on the value at the NFL level. NHL, for example, Ottawa Senators just recently sold for a shade. The valuation was basically right on a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. What it sold on this list, it's at 655 million. So the call it the the hype machine that's currently around the acquisition of sports franchises obviously created a bunch of value there's what whatever the the ownership group that that viewed ottawa as a good investment obviously sees this as paying off into the future however long they decide to hold it for so this needs to be taken with a grain of salt and maybe there is more um intangible or uh, unrealized value in some of these nhl franchises where they think and this would actually go similar to a conversation we've had previously on why there's been such an influx in in north american investors going overseas into europe and investing in 
in soccer clubs, et cetera. I mean, Saudi Arabia, obviously making investments into premiership clubs as well. And F1, those leagues specifically, I'm going to talk about premiership football. I think the viewpoint is that they have a, there's more growth potential there for that to become a more North American, not, I guess just more of a North American sport consumed more in North America. And there's, there's more room for the, for, for revenues to grow on that side of things. So they're like, if we can take kind of the model that we've done in North American sports and be able to apply this in Europe for premiership clubs in England or, or take your pick kind of thing, they see that that can be a better long-term investment because it costs basically the barrier to entry and the cost that it would be to acquire a New York Jets or a Washington Commanders in comparison to making an acquisition of X percentage of pick your football club is a lot lower and they think that there would be more growth potential there, potentially the same kind of ideas around the NHL. So 655 on this list from Sportico for Ottawa, obviously a billion dollars was paid. Your, whatever your asset is, is worth as much as someone wants to pay for it. And that was a billion dollars in Ottawa's case. So if you apply those metrics to a bunch of these teams, then potentially that pushes the NHL teams up further up this list. Oh, completely. I think just by being, it's kind of like you never want to be the most expensive house in the neighborhood Mm -hmm. unless you paid 160 or 150 million for it. Um, Because then you're just a boss. Yeah, well, um, then you're dragging everybody up with you. I do believe there's something to be said for that. Uh, And obviously buying NHL hockey teams um, for some of these people and the amount of money that they have, it's literally a drop in the bucket. Uh yeah, I don't have many comments here. I'm still disappointed with a lot of the strategy coming from the NHL. I'd really like to see them move a little bit faster and break a few things instead of being so conservative. But, I mean, that's the nature of the beast. And um, I don't really have much more to say. Should we move on to recommendations? Let's do it. So I went to Oppenheimer alone last mm-hmm. night. My kid. Congratulations. My wife is in, uh, is in Invermere with the little guy. So I have this week as a single, single fellow out and on the town. What better thing to do than go crush some popcorn and watch a good movie. Exactly. And I went and saw Oppenheimer. It was really good. A little long. Really enjoyed it. I, <laughs> John had a fantastic way of looking at it. And um, what did he say? I got to bring up our, our group chat, but he, he basically made reference to um, the movie being a really great view into the what it took to build something that could fry that many people. And it was kind of a sad. Yeah, I, I think view. I, lots of people that I've read, it's like one of those movies where you have to see it, but it's not one that's necessarily going to be on your rewatch list. No, I think that's true. And because of the sentiment you leave, you're saying like if you really understand what the the mindset behind that group, the Manhattan Project, et cetera, and what that meant is like that kind of gives you that uneasy feeling. And so that, that the reaction to it's almost like it's a beautiful piece. Like I mean, Christopher, I don't think Christopher Nolan's ever done anything that's not been amazing. Really good. And it's so much thought that goes into it. And I think the detail that obviously a longer movie it really really dives into the details but i want to bring one thing to 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 light that i think is important i believe that that event like i think the circumstance of everything was just like incredibly challenging and difficult um 
but what it has given society and our, 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 the fabric of human, of, of how we interact as humans, it's given us this, this nuclear, um, protection. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people view nuclear as being a danger. Mm-hmm. I believe that nuclear specifically has given us this, the nuclear option, which effectively is this game th- in game theory where you, everybody has one. So now ev- nobody goes to war. And since then, earth has been more peaceful than it has been for 30,000 years. And while obviously that's really hard to digest and think about with when there's a, the invasion of the Ukraine happening, and obviously there's still war on earth relative to other past history it's more muted even while our weaponry has been more powerful than ever before. And I think that that is powerful. And I think when you think about it from like a macro level, it's sort of nice that we're not worried about, or at least we haven't been worried about what nuclear war looks like because of um, just that, that option being something that almost all developed countries have. And we're just, yeah, the ultimate staying deterrent. in line because yeah. of it, right? Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. I think obviously those kind of things can change with yeah, one button and one psychopath. But it's yeah. To to your point, it is it is crazy to think about the the advancements are all related to deterrence. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, outside of 1945, um, you know, the, there hasn't really been another event quite like that. So it, I haven't seen it yet. So I'm not going to give my full opinion. But from that's kind of right up my alley in terms of historical things that we wouldn't necessarily learn in school and sometimes the dark side of our history as well. It's a, I'm not saying it's not interesting and it's not, and you know, I'm not even necessarily going to take a side on, on all of the developments from, from that project, et cetera. But it is, it's something that's not necessarily like you, you learn about the the bombings of of, of the two cities in, in Japan, but it, you don't necessarily learn into the details of how it came about and and what you have to seek that out yourself. So seeing that in a major motion picture and obviously done by one of the best directors of our generation, I think it's obviously a good a good mix. So um, my rec- I started reading a book this week. What? Yeah. So uh, again, historical based. It was actually I think originally published in 2014, so it's an old one, but. I'd actually saw it on a, I don't listen to Joe Rogan very often, but he had Annie Jacobson on, um, I think it's it's within the last year anyway. So she was the author of this story called, uh, or this book called Operation Paperclip, which is the, I was going to read this synopsis. So Operation Paperclip was a secret United States intelligence program in which more than 1600 German scientists, engineers, and technicians were taken from the former Nazi Germany to the U.S. for government employment and after the end of World War II between 1945 and 1959. So it is, again, it, I would say you would have to definitely be interested in the facts of that time. It's not necessarily talking about war stories per se. It's more so talking about the lead up, the last probably from 1943 to 1945, the downfall of the Nazi regime and talking about the the allied forces, I guess, mission to at the same time, obviously push back from just like the war standpoint, but also to be gaining intelligence. And cause like, I mean, it's pretty well documented, obviously how 
much more advanced Nazi technology was at that time in comparison to other developed countries. And so them going through and understanding their the chemical warfare, biological warfare measures that they were taking. And at the same time, it was basically like the the political science leaders of that time and the uh, in North America and I'm sure in, in Soviet Russia as well were basically saying the next thing that we're going to have to deal with is Soviet Russia versus the U.S. And so it's an arms race in terms of technology and information that we're going to have to take. And their Soviet Russia was coming from the east, Allied forces coming from the west, taking info. It was basically a race to see who could get, gather the necessary information that was left over, hadn't been destroyed yet, and the assets in relation to that, which were the brains of some of these scientists who did unspeakable things and were in charge of unspeakable things, but then basically making a decision to say for the betterment of our country and our development from a technological, astronomical, whatever it might or um astrological. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I was trying to say like from like the space um developments, etc. What information can we take and what what brains can we take out of this? Like there is I haven't gotten I'm about a quarter of the way through the book right now, but basically talking about, you know, some people who were up for Nuremberg trials originally that got taken off and were given employment in the U.S. and vice versa, people taken to Soviet Russia and everything kind of being excused. So not a cheery, happy thing, but obviously just I'm interested personally in that kind of stuff. I know there's a lot of history buffs and um, again, something that you don't necessarily learn about in your typical school year and obviously the kind of the dark secrets around that time and and what happened to some of these people who were obviously viewed as you know people that were in charge of concentration camps that were you know operational related people Nuremberg trials whatever it was sentencing killed whatever it might be these folks were the brainchilds around a lot of this stuff and were sacrificed in the name of coming over and working for the previous their previous enemy whether it be the u.s or soviet russia and both building up those programs to eventually could you imagine us somehow pulling that off in today's society i just i can't imagine it no i can't it wouldn't i don't think it would happen anymore but well actually i shouldn't say that there's it might get done but it would be done privately somehow i mean it really just yeah and i'm interested to learn about the exposure of this because that's the one piece that i don't know how this all came about but even then we know so much now about each person on earth, any involvement in something so horrific, you, we wouldn't be able to just wash under the rug. Like even the idea of having these programs where we're able to like shuffle someone off into like the heart of Saskatchewan to protect them from, I don't know, the hell's angels or whatever, because I just don't know if that's even possible today mm. uh, with yeah, cameras your and social right? media and, and yeah. those sorts of things. Um, yeah. yeah. Like the stories are wild. Like it's like, they were like, them going into research facilities and finding papers that had been forgotten and or were flushed on the toilet, but the toilet didn't work when they did it and like finding documents and like basically, you know, you imagine the resources would be scarce at that time in yeah. comparison to what we have now, but then connect them connecting the dots and finding related information and having obviously insiders that are with like that are kind of crossing the line because they know Nazi Germany is falling and people switching sides for, to make deals, all this kind of stuff. So that all that stuff is interesting to me. So that might be a boring thing for no. 75% of listeners. And it's not like your every it's chap, uh, operation paperclip is the, the name. I was going to so guess Danny that Jacobson. it was somebody turned a paperclip into a mansion and that was their 
<laughs> they, did trade it, they did the bartering trade all the way up. Yeah, burning yeah. man. Yeah. Um, that's it for me this week. That's it for me. We'll talk to you next week, buddy. Take care.